Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Becky Wasserman Hone on the show today. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very nice to see you. And it's so nice to see you again. So it turns out that I live in the Upper East Side of New York, and you were born and lived in the Upper East Side of New York. I did indeed. I was born in 1937, in January. And for what I remember, I think that my family was very well off for a short period of time. So I remember a Norwegian nanny and all sorts of good things like that. And then, you know, sort of a gentle slide to the other side. My father was a Wall Street man, had his own firm, and specialized in railroad bonds, which became obsolete. And it was very hard for him to adjust. Your mother was a ballerina. She was a prima ballerina in Romania, which was really, used to be Hungary. And she was put into the corps de ballet at the age of four. Eventually, she worked in cabaret. She did because she left Romania, moved to Germany, and nobody wanted a classic, a classical ballerina. She used to talk about, oh, that was the time of Isidore Duncan, and she was just stamping around the stage, no style whatsoever. So she went to work, she had to, and uh, began in cabaret, and then met an out-of-work Viennese composer, and went on the road in Germany for 10 years, doing... Not classical ballet, but doing everything from lullabies to all that sort of thing. What do you remember about the childhood? I remember really the schools I went to more than anything and those experiences. First, I went to a school that was run by an English woman called Mrs. Glaves, and it was full of children who'd been sent away from London during the Blitz. And that was quite good. And then I went to Rudolf Steiner School. That was a superb experience. And then I didn't want to be a scholarship girl when it came to going to high school. So I took the tests for Hunter College High School and got in. A very different experience from Rudolf Steiner. Who's your crowd? I was a baby intellectual. You know, I ran around with volumes of Camus and what have you under my arm, hoping somebody would notice and understand. Wonderful French teacher. So I was an adolescent existentialist, you know, and I ran around with the literary crowd. You ended up in Cambridge. I did. 
Cambridge then was very exciting. It was the era of the beat poets, and we became, you know, sort of friendly with Allen Ginsberg and particularly Gregory Corso. So it was a fascinating moment. And I had a couple of good jobs then because I didn't go back to college. My um, husband did. And I worked in Boston at a small advertising agency writing about torque and thrust, because machines, not pretty things. And then I had a brief stint at the Peabody Museum in the ornithology department. And the head ornithologist in the end felt I wasn't suited because with 10,000 turkey bones to, you know, sort of write numbers on, I began to write impolite things on the larger bones and was asked to leave. <laughs> this is kind of your own beat poetry. <laughs> My husband was on the Harvard Advocate, so I did have the pleasure of sitting next to T.S. Eliot. I, I think I was so small and timid that they felt that these, you know, extraordinary personalities wouldn't be mean to me, so I, I was used. Did he really measure out his life in coffee spoons? <laughs> Not at the dinner. <laughs> but it was very nice. Do you remember any banter from the uh, Mr. Eliot? He was quite quiet. Very elegant and very polite, and answered questions that were put to him because the Harvard undergraduates were evidently full of questions. I, I suppose Ginsburg had a lot of hair back then. He did have a lot of hair. He hung out at some of the cafes and always had a bunch of people around him because nowadays you can have long hair or what have you, but he sort of stood out. And once Kerouac came down, and so you know, had the pleasure of shaking his hand. But it was, it was a great deal of fun. And that was the 50s? Yes. And by the late 60s, you were in France? In 68, we moved to France. Spent a summer in 67. And uh, my Wasserman husband, that was Philadelphia. So that was life in Pennsylvania. You had met Bart? Yes. What was he like at that time? I was sort of studying harmony and composition, and so was he with the same two teachers. And he looked very intense. He used to sit on this very small street in his gray convertible. And I think his very intensity made him noticeable. And, you know, I, I, I think it was a, a period in my life when artists or writers were everything. And the fact that he had been to Yale and then been a broker at Merrill Lynch and then gave it all up to become, oh, he'd also been a pilot, a jet pilot. He wanted to become an artist, was very enticing. He'd been disinherited for that choice, so it was somewhat of a Temporarily disinherited. So I went to work at a department store, it was called Lit Brothers, and I got to write wonderful couplets about pink dresses or refrigerators or you know, that sort of thing. But it was very good because what I did learn through that experience was that it is wonderful to be part of a group of working people. You know, they, they would take care of you where your bosses wouldn't. And so the experience of going down there every day was really quite remarkable. What made you pick Burgundy? Gosh, we, we had... Um, a young Frenchman in Philadelphia who, who lived with us. And I think Bart Wasserman wanted to leave the United States because the action was in New York, but I don't know. He probably felt he wasn't developed enough to get into, you know, the art scene there. And we tried London for a summer, 
uh, which was, you know, fascinating city. Uh, but then this fellow said, why don't you try Burgundy for a summer? And the light was absolutely splendid, and Wasserman liked wine. And I was a great fan of France, so we moved, we moved here. My mother in tow, the two children, and the experience of living in a French village was a delight. What was it like back then, Burgundy? Well, so different. No supermarkets whatsoever. We had rented a house in Saint-Romain that had an indoor bathroom, and people would appear very often with towels and soap and ask if they could try before purchasing, you know, or having such an investment of their own. It was very... uh, It it takes someone who adored everything that was French. Um, So everything I saw with eyes that were certainly perhaps not objective... But everything was wonderful. The fact that you could just go down the hill in Saint-Romain and get your bread in the morning or that trucks came up selling food was enchanting. It was wonderful. And people were very curious about us. So the butcher would say, oh, so-and-so has asked me what you've bought today. And it was known throughout the village that I had made a soup, which was the color of blood. It was actually a borscht, and I'd made it for Aubert de Vilaine, who is part Russian. You know, but there was all this sort of gossip and everything. And I was invited to a tasting in Saint-Romain. The mayor of Saint-Romain made wine. And I must say that I didn't know how to spit. I mean, spitting, as you know, in the United States is impolite, and I believe you can go to prison for spitting. So I drank everything. And the mayor's winery was down the hill and I'd get the, up the hill. I got back up the hill completely drunk, and my mother was so angry. I had to hold on to houses. I sort of crept like some strange animal. My mother said, you are drunk. And I said, yes, I am. Get to your room, she said immediately. I will take care of the children. So that was my first tasting in a cellar. Drunk. Your mom like wine? Not really. No. No, she really didn't. She liked a glass of champagne, a glass of sherry. She liked the idea of wine because I think her grandfather had made Tokai. And in Germany, you know, she, she liked the Rieslings, but she was not a wine lover by any means. Your mother sort of adopted Aubert a little bit during his university days? Oh, he was, he was a bachelor. No, he, he was out of university, but he had a small apartment in Bone. And we became very friendly, and he would come up and dine with us very often. We got along very well, and my mother would sew buttons on his shirts. And they would kind of fall off? Well, they looked as though they were hanging by a thread. What was Aubert like in those days? Lovely man. Fascinated by what he was doing. And, you know, it was when he and Pamela bought the domain in Bouzon, and he learned to drive a tractor. Then... I think the fascination was total. And he had that California connection with Pamela, and and you ended up having a California connection. Well, when he met Pamela, yes, he went to California. And I ended up having a California connection because I was a barrel peddler. You ended up working for Francois Frerin and Terence, though. Yes, correct. And you see, I'd gone to California. Actually, my sons and I were sent away in the summer of 1975 because there was a resident mistress from New Zealand. So we were told to go. 
And we'd met people in California or come to visit for one reason or another. And so I went off to California with my two sons, which was an adventure. And I uh, ended up in Montana. That was the last stop. And feeling, you know, sort of quite out of sorts. But um, I was offered a job in Yellowstone Park cooking because the friend of mine who, you know, took us in in Montana said, Becky's a very good cook. And I suddenly realized, good heavens, I can do something. And perhaps we ought to stay in Yellowstone, you know, have the boys go to school there and so on and so forth. But I can actually do something and get paid for it. Got back here and Jean-Francois said, well, you've been to California. And I said, yes. And he said, well, I wonder if you could sell a few barrels for me. So you know the proverbial eureka. This is something that could happen. And that was really the beginning of it all. Because there weren't so many um, women who owned businesses at that time in France. In my generation, you see, one forgets that there were a number of professions that were not open to us. And many of us were condemned, you know, to think of life in terms of being a high-powered secretary and all of that. So it wasn't, earning money wasn't a prime motivation. It was doing something that wasn't uh, just sort of so standard, if you will. And so, no, the, the whole idea was, gosh, if I could be a cook at Yellowstone, I can probably sell barrels, never having sold anything in my life. And so the year later, Jean-Francois made me a small barrel, and off I went to California with a barrel in my car. You just sort of showed it to wineries and said, are you interested in French cooperage? The person who was very nice to me was a man named uh, Richard Graff. And he was one of the, you know, pioneer winemakers in um, California. And he was very kind. He tried to bring in barrels uh, before. He introduced me to a few people. And I met wonderful, extraordinary men like Andrei Chelichev, who again was very you know, interested, but told me, if you ever let me down, I will pursue you to the ends of the earth. And that was quite interesting. And then Peter and Paul, there was a magazine called Wines and Vines, which listed all the California wineries. So Peter and Paul, in, you know, their very childish handwriting, we wrote letters to everybody, you know, introducing the Francois Frere Cooperage and so on and so forth. And some people actually responded. And those are the people I went to visit. Because I remember Dick Graff at one point when he was still alive said that the greatest wines were all made in barrel. Mm-hmm. He did. It's what he thought. And he was an interesting man. He was also a philosopher, though I don't think his philosophic movement ever took off. But he was very precise and very, very good about how he made wine. Very good. There was no show-off period at that point. The winemakers were very devoted but no one was showing off. There was no media at that point. And Chelichev was using American wood at that time? Chelichev had been using what he could find, but he was interested in French cooperage, evidently, because he had lived in France before. But he felt as though it had a good use if people didn't overuse it. He was worried about too much oakiness. But you know, the different types of oak all gave different sorts of 
degrees of oak, so the trancé being the finest, really the limousin, always with a tiny little smell of vanilla. You know, it was very, uh, it was very interesting, but it was the beginning of something. How often were you in California at that point? I would go to California twice a year to sell barrels. And eventually you transitioned to Tarenceau. Worked with them both. Jean Tarenceau was a gentleman and a scholar, had a, a barrel museum. It's very interesting to sit in the adulteress's barrel because uh, fellows would actually have one made, lock Madame up when they went off. <laughs> what I also liked and went with both Jean Tarenceau and Jean-Francois was into the forest to see how oaks grow and that the best oaks are very often not crowded by other ones. And the wood choppers back then uh, were fairly small. It wasn't done in an industrial way back then. And they would chop down a very magnificent oak. And then they would put very heavy pieces of metal down the length of the trunk. And they'd go, boom, the trunk would open up. And the smell and the color were just exquisite. They're just exquisite. You know, they talk about oak being noble and so on and so forth. But when the oak tree was split, it was an incredible experience. So you made a sale to Mayakamas at one point, right? I did. That was the first. They bought the first 15 barrels. What was the Travers family like? Bob and Noni, so sampa. They were so open. They were so funny. And, you know, their vines were very beautiful. And then they had a theory because they had no place to keep wine except under one of the beds. And the wines that were kept under the beds, the bottles were always the best. So we had fun together. We had fun together. And I came back, and when I told Jean-Francois's father, I've sold 15 barrels, and he looked at me and said, that's not going to keep us going. <laughs> but the interesting thing about it was you had to get a California estate to receive the container of barrels. And it was like putting, what do you call it, Sudoku today, one of those sort of mathematical games. Somebody would take 12 barrels. Somebody would take 15. Somebody would take. So you had to mathematically get your container loaded. They were called high tops at that point. And then you had to say to Spring Mountain or somebody, you know, would you agree to receive the container? And then people would come with their trucks to pick up their barrels. So it wasn't just you know how I have a barrel for you, you know. It was much more complex, but what it taught me was how to group wines. Because when you work with small producers, you don't have a container full. You've got 10 of this, 23 of that, and so on and so forth. And so I was really a, I wasn't a groupie, I was a grouper. And that was my great talent, was grouping. <laughs> because much later, when you wanted to sell grower burgundy instead of negociant burgundy, which had been sort of what was selling before, you had to come up with the methods and the structure oh, to course. do that. Of course, but even more than just containers, because you had to learn things about trucking. And a French trucker is not obligated to load his truck. So that if you arrive as a trucker and you just see a four-year-old child going, bonjour, monsieur, you drive on because you have a very tight schedule. Everything has to go into a container at a certain point to get on the ocean to go. So I had to really work, all, but I like that sort of thing. I like why or how can it go from point A to point B. Sounds like you wanted to help some people, too. 
like you wanted to see some things through because you thought it would be better for everyone involved. Not exactly. I was desperate for a job. Now, what can you do in Bone? I was bilingual, uh, bilingual night receptionist. That wouldn't have done. I was still married to Wasserman. And then also the other thing is I've always been a fan of people who do what I couldn't possibly do. So it was a combination. And then there was a thought that perhaps by doing this, and the growers were so kind. They were so helpful and they were so, you know, excited. And I had to tell them, you know, I'm just beginning. I can't promise anything. But even there, you had to teach people to glue, you know, an import strip. Uh, your cartons had to be heavier than they would be. So it was a whole, a whole process. It wasn't just, you know, ah, it smells like acacia or bumblebees or what have you. That was a small part of it. When did you start to like wine? We had wine in Philadelphia because Wasserman bought wines. And I was always quite fascinated by them. The very first bottle I ever had in my life was a Mateus Rosé. And I felt so sophisticated, I can't tell you, you know. But uh, anything that was European, I was very drawn to. Very drawn to, you know, the art, the literature, the food, the books. So... Yeah. When did you decide that you wanted to do some brokering of Burgundy yourself? The content of a barrel in the end was more enticing than a barrel itself. And it seemed to me that it might be just a very good thing to do. Certainly Jean-Francois introduced me to a number of domains where he sold barrels. And I had the great good fortune of meeting people like Michel Lafarge and Gerard Potel. And one thing sort of led to another. I turned over my barrel business to Mel Knox because I couldn't say that certain wines were too oaky if I continued to sell barrels. That, that wasn't, you know, right. And I hooked up with someone in Bordeaux named Christopher Canaan. And so for several years we were Canaan and Wasserman, which was coincided with really the opening of the doors to Domaine Bottled Wines. There was an early uh, International Herald Tribune article that mentioned you, right? Yes, John Winroth, who was a great friend. He was a partner of Stephen Spurrier. He worked with Stephen at the uh, school, at the academy. And there was sort of a gang, you know, really very marvelous gang. And, you know, discovering things like the, uh, the Northern Rhone, all of that. And one felt there was a magic about it. You know, finding wines and then everyone would share. There was, no, there was no sense of competition or... But everyone sort of hung out together. It was nice. What was the first vintage for you? The first vintage I sold would have been about 70, <laughs> 76. The drought year, the tannic year. <laughs> but people still had stock. So, you know, you, they would give you a list and you'd find some 72s and what have you. But 76, the impossible year was, yeah. <laughs> you started your business at a time when there was a lot of growth and forward motion amongst American consumers for wine. Yes, you, you had to proselytize. You know, consumer tastings were an absolute essential. And there were a number of experiences uh, 
<laughs> I was doing a tasting in Detroit, and a dinner tasting, and it had to do with Volnais. And at that point, I had Pousse-Dor, I had Du Monti and Lafarge and Lafont. I really had the most beautiful bouquet of... Um, well, there was a group of gentlemen who had evidently had some dry martinis before this dinner, and they started, Volnay, you know, where's that? What the... and so on and so forth. And they went on and on, and so I very quietly insisted that the Cote de Bone and Volnay was, you know, it was not what had been written about, that it was always light-bodied, which wasn't true. Well, they got very angered, and they started throwing bread rolls at me. And being someone who's not athletic, I didn't know how to duck, so I stood there, you know, as they bounced off my head, and then the gentlemen were escorted from the room. But I had another tasting in uh, New Jersey, the Essex Wine Society, where half the audience walked out because of it was Volney, and therefore was not important. So there, there was a lot of that, and you had to knock on doors and be willing to do tastings whenever somebody wanted you to, and wherever. And you're a single mom. Yeah, by then I was pretty much of a single mom, yeah. But it was, you know, it was, it was uh, stimulating, and, and I'd never traveled. So, you know, you, you would go to a city, and, and, and I'd never been there before, and there was a certain fascination. It was tiring, of course. How do you think people responded to you as a woman? I only had one or two difficult experiences in the States. If you were traveling by yourself, and you st I always stayed in a hotel with a restaurant, um, and the maitre d'hotel would put you at the worst table, and I would buy, you know, a bottle of wine really to try, and you could see the disapproval, oh, she's going to drink this and get drunk, and I'm going to have to cope with her. So that was sort of a leap motif through all of the United States if you stayed by yourself in a hotel. In terms of education, how did you approach it? Because it feels like you, you know, had to tackle a lot of that educational side for Burgundy. I suppose when you're enthusiastic about something and you know the, the points to make were fairly simple. People say that Burgundy is a hideous complexity, but if you bring it back to the farming aspects, then it isn't as bad as you know. There was a book that was very popular written by an Englishman, and he was a vet, and he wrote Small is Beautiful. Now, that sounds very silly, because not everybody bought the book, yet it became sort of a catchphrase, you know, which you could use. You know, Small is Beautiful, and then explaining the notion of farming, and so on and so forth. So it was, uh, but it was really, you, you'd have a devoted retailer who would throw a tasting for you, and that's when it really started to get going. And then it was sort of word of mouth. When I entered the wine trade in late 99, there was a, this sort of idea that Burgundy was inconsistent. Did you have to kind of counter that notion? Oh, of course. The Pinot was a terrible grape, and it was fragile and weak and so on. But there again, remember, there wasn't that much of an emphasis on correct shipping. I mean, wine, for instance, is more poorly treated than fruit. And it was when you got to a point where you could insist upon refrigerated containers or refuse if a truck came by in the kind of weather we're experiencing today. Hot, hot, hot. You know, it doesn't take long for, 
So once uh, I think people realized the advantages of refrigeration, and some importers had always done that, but a lot of wine was not good because of that. And it wasn't that expensive per bottle. You had to order up what we called a reefer when I began. There weren't a million reefers. You know, now they're a dime a dozen. But it's important because, you know, even today you, you, you get people, well, I bought a case of this and it's terrible. And they left their car in the sun in a parking lot and they've spent a lot of money. Eh. And, you know, it's, it's uh, you, you, you can't, uh, people long for wine to be a product, but they don't want it to be a product at all. Uh, you know, there's this confusion. I wanted to be like a can of Coca-Cola, never changing. And yet, I don't want it to be that at all. I want a story. On the grower side, who were you looking to find and who did you find early in? I started to work with Pousdor, Michel Lafarge, Hubert de Monti, if I just take Volney, as soon as Pascal Marchand was at Claude des Epineaux in Pomar. In Bone, I had, well, Domaine doesn't exist anymore, François Germain. I had Denny Bachelet. I had Alain Berguet in Chevrolet. Uh, really, Chambold began with Fred Meunier. And uh, in the beginning, um, it was very difficult to place his wines because it was in an era where all wines needed to be opaque and, you know, stand the knife up in them. And there was Fred with these wonderfully delicate, yet strong wines. It just, uh, so that was then Chambord in Vaughan Romanet. I had quite a few people in Vaughan. As a matter of fact, the Munierets, uh, not the sisters, but the René Munieret, and then his son Gerard, and now Pascal. And people I've think almost didn't continue to exist, uh, like Manière Noirot and so on and so forth. It was a very small list. It was mimeographed. You know, it wasn't huge. But I also had wine from the Corbière very early on. And then I met a philosophy professor in sort of not one of the best Midwestern universities. And he had lived in the Côte de Rhone with the curé, with a priest. His name was Robert Mayberry and wrote one of the first really intelligent books. You can only buy it secondhand now if it even exists. And he had studied all the Appalachians. So I had all the Cote de Rhone villages. <laughs> when did you first meet Richard Olney? It must have been because he was writing his book on Romani Conti and Aubert called and said, can I bring Richard over because he's tired of eating in restaurants? So he brought Richard over and it was lovely because I smoked, and so did Richard. And I didn't have anything. I said to Ober, I've got nothing in the fridge. And Richard arrived, asked for whiskey, and then he said, you have a vegetable garden? I said, yes. We went and we dug up all these really lovely spring vegetables, you know, tiny potatoes, and I had peas and carrots, and I had strawberries. So we made a vegetable dinner, and Ober had brought a bottle of Latache, and at the end, uh, Richard asked for big glasses, and he took the strawberries, and he crushed them in these big glasses and poured some Latache and ate them with a spoon. This is a wonderful way to eat and drink a good Burgundy. Those are some lucky strawberries. Oh, weren't they, though? 
But remember, back then, it wasn't what it is today. You could buy a three-pack at the Domaine. I mean, not the best vintages. It was so, um, so innocent. It was so innocent compared to today. I mean, not that today is the opposite of innocent. It certainly isn't, but it wasn't as moneyed as some of the domains are today. And yet, uh, the ironic thing is, is there's a burgundy for every pocket. You know, if you can't afford Michel Lafarge's Clos de Chêne, you can afford his Bourgogne. It's old vines, for heaven's sakes, and you get a style. Russell, your current husband, ended up working with Richard only on a series of cookbooks. He did indeed. Spent a lot of time with Richard. He, he was spot on with wines, but the language was simpler back then. If a wine wasn't good, it wasn't good. And you, didn't, you, know, you knew if it was corky because that was something that everybody knew, but you didn't go into rhapsodies of flaws at, at that point. And I've heard it said that you felt that you, know, you didn't have great eyesight and you felt that that helped you actually kind of focus in on the aromas of wine. Yes, and I think a number of people who are myopic find that their sense of smell is quite developed as a compensation. And as a little girl, I always loved the smell of things. I mean, I had the great good fortune. Uh, I grew up in New York, but it was well before the polio vaccine was developed. So I was sent off to a small town in Pennsylvania for the summers with our housekeeper, who came from a Czechoslovakian family, and they were coal miners. And the Baba, the grandmother, had a, an incredible vegetable garden, and she took a look at me, and I must have looked like a little New York cockroach or something and she pointed she didn't speak english and she pointed to various things for me to pick up and eat like wild strawberries and then i got the great honor of getting the eggs in the morning but it was a lovely farm smell you know i really like that and then pulling up vegetables it's very different than buying them in a supermarket because you smell the soil and all of that so i had you know these wonderful summers which were very, uh, yeah, I was going to say down to earth, and that's exactly what they were. <laughs> but a bump. But I also always liked the smell of food. And our housekeeper really was a terribly good cook, but it was in Hawk Run, Pennsylvania, you know, the rust belt that, uh, you know, chicken would be killed, you know, once every two weeks, but you had wonderful, one just wonderful, you know, so the glasses didn't matter too much. I can see the appeal then for you of moving to Bouland, living in sort of the country of... Britain. Yes, well, that was the choice of Wasserman, and we, we have three buildings. The third one has been sold off. But at one point, I had an extensive farm. I had 40 sheep, 50 rabbits, chickens, ducks, geese, and a huge vegetable garden. Really big. What made you happy early on in uh, brokerage days? I mean, early in and owning your own company, what, what were some of the real delights of that? Twofold. One is to have somebody drink a glass of wine and you see on their face that it works. You know, that, that's what you want to see. You want to see that gratified. It doesn't even need to be a smile. It's just, you, it's more than they expected. And maybe they were a bit suspicious. And then... You know, coming back here and saying, uh, we've done it, we've done it, we've got, you know. 
And then uh, when Canaan and Wasserman dissolved, we became the invoicing entity. You know, we weren't a brokers anymore. We were a principal, if you will, in the transaction. And that was very satisfying, despite the fact that, you know, the place has been mortgaged and remortgaged in order to pay the growers. That was essential. You know, our, our place is stone and oak. You know, it's not going to go away. So it was that sort of satisfaction that if problems did happen, that you could go to the bank and say, hey, I've got to pay, pay my growers, and they'd give you, <laughs> you know, another mortgage and things. And, and uh, it's a jumble of things. I loved the learning process. You know, Hubert de Monti would make me taste from cask again and again and again until I could say, that's taipier, that's champon. You know, I had several domains that would just put me through my paces. And I learned all about things that, well, everybody's much more advanced today, but just take malolactic fermentations. What is the difference between a wine, the issue of a turbulent malolactic or a calm malolactic? And I also learned that there is no one recipe. You know, if you look at the way Rousseau makes wines, I mean, it's completely different and it would absolutely shock somebody else. He likes a, a very comfortable, quite quick mallow, where other people, ah, oh, I'm so glad the mallows haven't started and it's now three years, you, you, you know, all of that. The other thing that I found, and I'm really sorry I never took a little tape recorder, were some of the stories of the past, because we used to work with a domain called Andre Musi, and his family had always had vineyards, but they didn't have a horse, and they had to rent a horse. And the more money you gave to the owner of a horse, the quicker you could get your horse and therefore control. So for them, life changed when they could buy a horse. But all of that was fascinating, and, and you learned so much. You learned so much, and then I think what it does, it gives you a, it gives you a sense of continuity. You're not so much living for the moment or trying to follow trends, which are short-lived. You know, 48% in New Oak, and where's that now? Or this or that or the other thing. You see it as a continuum and always dictated by the weather. We forget it's farming. And the vineyards are all important and taken very good care of, I must say, nowadays. This is, you know, wonderful to see. You think the viticulture has gotten better? Oh, immensely so. And it was Christophe Rumier who actually, he and a small group, Andre Chelichev, wanted to meet the young people. So I had Christophe and Etienne Grivo and Patrick Bees and over, you know, to have a drink with Andre. And Christophe said to him, the biggest change is in the viticulture. Because I guess it was sort of during the Parker era, the concentration was in the winery, not in the vineyards. And now the concentration has to be for good viticultural practices. And so that was a big change in the 80s. At what point did Jim Clendenin show up? Was it 1980? I think he did the 81 harvest. Jim was fascinating. We used to have wonderful talks about international politics, you know, when Assad was assassinated in Egypt and what have you. Very eager. Uh, and went and did do a whole harvest with Adam Tomac at uh, the Duke de Magenta's. Um, very hands-on, very enamored of Volney. And he, he sort of overlapped with Dominique Lafon at the office. Dom was the one who collected a lot of information 
and also did a lot of visiting. And because the one thing that I lacked, of course, was an enologist or someone who knew it from really basically. Because you can, as a, someone who hasn't had that sort of training, you can blah, blah to your blue in the face, but you don't have the same knowledge. That's very important. It's very important if you're in any profession that you have somebody who knows it, knows what this is going to do, what that's going to do, and so on and so forth. And so Dom was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. We had funny moments. I had sheep. And also I had as an intern a young English lord named Bertie Eden, who now has vineyards in the south of France. And my sheep had hoof infection, and so you had to treat their hooves. And so I put Bertie and Dominique to catching the sheep. It was a rodeo of sorts. And they would sort of gang up on one sheep together. And I thought, oh, my Lord, the sheep are going to die, you know, because there are two of these husky lads, and there they are on but uh, we had a lot of fun together and a lot of hard work. A lot of hard work. So there was a largely a two-generational situation yes. when you were starting. There was yes. the Lafon, the Rumier generation, which you saw come up and come oh, into their yes. own. And then there was the Hubert de Monti, yeah. Michel Lafarge yes, generation. exactly. And the Jacques yeah. Sace generation. And no women, and now there are so many, that I have a group for next year. They only want to visit women winemakers, which, you know, would have been unheard of back then. There was much superstition about women, you know, time of the month and all of that. And when Zelma came, I had to get, uh, Zelma was here with Marianne Graf, I had to get doctor certificates for both Zelma and Marianne. You know, you're, you're, you're talking about change that has occurred so quickly, so quickly. When I used to have a pig, sort of en pension, because I didn't have a pigsty, and I used to do my hams and bacons every year. And I was told by people in the village, never try and salt a ham at that time of the month. So, you know, being American, and I... Anyway, I learned to listen to, you know, what is folk wisdom, or what have you. I'm sure it has no, you know, many other reasons, but... <laughs> But today, it's all changed. Today, it's all changed. You have more young women at the Lycée Viticole than you do young men. And the transition between father and daughter is beautiful. No, no arguments. Where very often, it's the other way. I feel like as a company, you've been very supportive to women on numerous occasions. Pragmatically so. Um, in our type of business, we've had fellows who have worked for us. The, it's been successful on the intern basis. But there's no, or seems to me to be very little, how can I put it, argument for power. Power isn't, what was the short story that was written uh, they, about a gestalt where you had twins who were this and you had somebody, you know, you sort of meld together and you're not trying to overtake. I mean, I... We have just recently had as interns two fellows, and they've been extremely successful, and we do ask them the question, will you find it disturbing to work in, you know, an all-woman company? And now Paul is back, you know, and Peter works for us as a consultant as well. Russell, my 
husband has always been an honorary woman. He has no psychological problems with it at all. And I'm sure that we, you know, could be more aggressive and tougher and do everything, but we've been very lucky in that perhaps our approach has kept domains with us for many generations. And we lose domains. I mean, you know, it happens. You gain them too, though. Yeah, absolutely. It's flexible. I mean, our weak point is possibly the fact that we work state by state. And this we learned from, you know, a hideous bankruptcy in the states that almost drove us under. And without a little help from my friends, you know, and taking in shareholders, we would not be here today. But state by state seems good in that if you know the structure of your state, it's evident that Massachusetts is not Wisconsin. California is certainly not New York. Louisiana is this. And if you know the structure within, it's more work, that's for sure. But when the bad times come, it's perhaps a little bit safer than being, you know, under one banner. I know you've, there have been financial setbacks. Oh, yeah. But I also know that Burgundy is gained in the esteem, the admiration, and the collections of American consumers quite a bit. Yeah, it's changed a great deal. I mean, people no longer sniff at Pinot. And <laughs> but our, our challenge, challenges always change. You can say, all right, Burgundy is now established, but it also has a, a false picture. That is to say, all Burgundies cost a month's salary. And that's not true. You know, one, one tends to say, oh, I must have the very best. But I would rather have a Bourgogne Rouge, a simple red burgundy with old vines, than a Grand Cru on its fourth leaf. You know? And so this is one of the challenges. It's to say it isn't just this. Because with a Bourgogne Rouge, first of all, you learn the style of a person. And now that's very important. Then if you like that, and if you say, oh, that's really good, and you've been able to afford it, then perhaps you'll put some money aside and start going up the ladder, should there be a ladder. But, uh, you know, and it's very interesting also to study end-of-year statements and to see how there are only a few domains which you can say are truly profitable. Others need constant reinvestment. And also the price, leaving the seller, by the time it goes through, you know, a number of hands is, is very different. So. I think that something that really changed over the course of your career was the auction market for Burgundy, yes. right? Yes. And it probably played into that perception that Burgundy was expensive wine. Yeah. Yeah. And then Asia coming into the, uh, into the game and Yeah. Over the course of your career, you've sort of believed in something and then watched it occur, especially in terms of reputation of certain estates, like Meunier or Catiar. I feel like you were an early yes. believer when the market hadn't quite caught on yet. Of course. So what's that been like? I mean, what are you looking for when you make a decision like that to say, oh, well, no one's really asking me for these, but I'm going to... Well, you know it's going to take several vintages. But if you believe in it, and again, we are a team. So you can have, you know, somebody who says, well, I'm really, and then if, the, let's say it's a majority vote, then you just knuckle down and, and go after it and 
hope that, you know, somebody will agree with you. And then usually one person does and then another and another. And we, since we don't handle worldwide distribution, you know, our major market's America, a bit in England, beginning in Scandinavia and beginning in Russia. And those markets are coming to us, not for the established domains, but for our youngsters. Is that true? Yeah. Because you have some like Chanterev now. And... Yes, Chanterev and Amélie Berthaud and, of course, Nicolas Faure. And this is great because it's my son's generation and Danielle's generation in the office who, you know, uh, can see people and are friendly with them. That's really good. And then we're not afraid of unfashionable appellations. What would be examples of that? I mean, Fisson. <laughs> i give for... you one right away. Pomar. And we've got a brilliant domain in Pomar, which is Clodes Epneau, where you can do, even though verticals are go-go, not that anyone's going to give cellar space to a mere Pomar. However, however, you know, and we've taken on a domain based in Ossi Duress. I love Ossi Duresses. And they used to be historically sent to more fashionable appellations in order to beef them up because they're quite... Uh, I don't like the word minerality, really, but they've got that sort of backbone, if you will. I mean, Pernod Vergeles, you know, nobody wants Pernod Vergeles. But you, you have to fight for what you believe, and it's not just going to happen. What were some of the markers in your own palette? What were some of the things that you remember? That's the wine that I really was drawn to. A lot of it has to do with time, place, person. And not just, innate. yeah, I can cask taste still with the best of them, you know, and kind of go this, boom, 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 and I think this, la, la, la. But the bottles I remember have to do with the circumstance. And John Winroth, who did do this wonderful article in the Herald Tribune years and years ago, uh, was a man who died of a genetic kidney condition. And when he came and told me about it, um, I mean, I hadn't bought any wines. I, I went into Bart's cellar and pulled out a Latash, and we sat in the back on the lawn there, and we drank it together. I will never forget that bottle, because I remember John told me, which meant, you know, I am going to die one of these days, and so on and so forth. I remember that. But I also remember very simple wines. Right time, right place, right people. How can I put it? I, I, I think that Burgundy's are almost human as wines. They can also sense if, you know, you've got somebody scowling at them, <laughs> you know, what are you serving, and so on and so forth. So it's, uh, yeah, but it's very interesting. I, I think the markers for me have been a perfectly simple bottle of Michel Lafarge, for instance, not the Clos de Chêne, which is a wonderful wine. It seems to me a value that you appreciate is drinkability in a red wine. Yes. Yes. Yes, I do, and, and many of the growers will agree with you. They're, they they say a wine is not to be discussed. It is to be drunk and give happiness and joy and, and a nice feeling to people. That is the point of it all. Did it take you a while to appreciate certain appellations more than others in your own development? Did you find certain ones a little tricky to understand? Like, for instance, I found Maurice Santini tricky for a while. Oh, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's, uh, to me, they've always been very stable wines, in a sense. They're, there's a French thing, you're, you're well-seated, you know? You're well-seated. And I always felt there was something in the bouquet that was 
noticeable because it was, I suppose today you would say black fruit. I mean, I suppose that would be a reasonable way, but it reminded me of hedge blackberries. And it is an appellation that now is coming into its own, finally. Very pleased to say. But I always did like oddball appellations like O.C. Duress. Always liked both white and red. And part of this had to do with when I started, it was who would work with me, you know, who would take the chance, because of course people would be suspicious, you know? So I got to know some appellations better than others. Bone, 41 Premier Cruise. Now, there are only four or five that people like, but they're incredible ones. And bones remain reasonably priced. They do. Nuit Saint-Georges, over 40. Nobody likes me, nobody wants Nuit Saint-Georges. And here you have this. You could, you could have a whole cellar with only Nuit Saint-Georges. The romantic ones, the ones you know closer to bone, the ones tucked up right next to Von Romanet. You, you, you could do these eccentric and wonderful things. And, but I like wines that are transparent rather than opaque. I think it's as simple as that. I, I, the mouthful isn't my thing, really. So if I wanted to understand a, a commune like Nuit St. George better, you just described one of the keys, right? Which is that a part is closer to bone and a part is closer yes. to bone. Yeah. What should I know about Nuit St. George to understand it better? You should know that the middle part is perhaps the definition of it. The ones close to Vaughan are exceedingly romantic, call them boudoir, Nuit Saint-Georges, if you will. And the ones, you know, closer to bone are more delicate. They're more lighthearted. They're more, you know, but it's been given a bad rap because of the tannins. And yet people don't vinify in that way much anymore. You know, if you, if you were an owner of Nuit Saint-Georges, you were almost obligated to make wines that would last for years because that's why people bought them. Pomar, same thing. Today's world doesn't lend to that anymore. And yet without changing the soul, if you will, of the particular appellation, there are ways of not insisting that the tannic side be the most important because... Today, I fear, is, is, is not the right time for putting things down for 20 years, in a way. Pomard's another appellation, I, like Nuit St. George, seems to have different, distinct styles based on the geography yes. within the zone. It does indeed. And there are very, again, very pretty pomards, you know, sort of like the Pezzarol, which is sort of lovely pomar, if you want to use the word lovely. But originally, the destiny, if you will, of the appellation was pomar goes with game. There you go. And it's hard to shake off a destiny that you are, in a sense, given because it's, you weren't just given it five years ago. You were given it, you know, a long, long time ago. Well, that's the classic old-school British writer definition of Pomar, right? Yes. And a lot of the French writers. I've got a lot of old text, and, and it's interesting how insistent it is. You will buy this for that. You will buy this for that. You will buy, which made life easy in a way. But uh, <laughs> unless you couldn't find that at the store, right? Anyway, exactly. Well, change our dinner plans. Yeah. <laughs> but what about Volnay? I feel like that you know the coming quite well. Volnay now had a very, very bad press for two hundred years because it was always considered to be light-bodied. Now this is 
quite far from the truth because you take the Sentinelles, you take the Chen, you take the Taipei, the Champagne, they are all wines of substance. But again, what, what's very interesting to me is you can have an opinion that was well known in its time and people pick it up and it becomes repeated, 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 repeated. So that you still find articles or people saying Volnay is light body. And it isn't. It can be very uh, intense, but the colors are not pale. Not at all. You know, they're fine, but you, you can't see the bottom of your glass. And you knew Gerard Protel quite well. Very well. Very, very well. It was Jacques Sace who introduced us to Gerard. A man ahead of his time. Really ahead of his time in terms of what his thoughts about vinification and viticulture were. And very sadly, um, my importers uh, wanted us to do tastings for certain very influential writers. And I, I would ask the, the writer if I could have people, winemakers, along so that we didn't have to open two or three hundred bottles and not only for one, one person. And there was a writer who thought that the root of all evil was filtration. And Gerard got very upset by this and said, I. I'm going to invite him over because I wish to explain that in many years you do not need to. In certain years you do, but there is filtration done by a heavy-handed person and there is filtration that is so delicate, you know? And then the article came out and Poos Door Filters. Our market went down in the United States by 80%. Not good. Not good. And what's it been like working with wines from the Hill of Corton? I love the red Cortons. I mean, the certain Corton Charlemans as well. But the red Cortons, I think you have a magnificent array of different parcels, different parcels. You know, the Renard is very, very good. I like Corton Renards. And you have to give them a bit of time. You can't just buy them and pop the cork and drink them. But, uh, you know, many of them, in, depending on the vintage, in five to six years. You can have a young, I, I had to do, when, just when I began a tasting in New York, it lasted all day, and it was the Reds, and it was from Sontenay up through Fixa. And when we got to a young Corton, for some reason the image of Mick Jagger popped into my mind, because young Cortons strut. They have this wonderful, they, they really are strutting, and uh, I remember saying that, and the audience was a bit... <laughs> put off, but they have that feeling to them. What are your thoughts about Gevray? Gevray being a large village with many, many occupants, I feel that it is a large enough appellation to welcome a number of different styles. Volney was mislabeled as being light, and Gevray is mislabeled as being coarse and, you know, these are a man's wine. And Chambord, oh, that's a woman's wine. Uh, nowadays, one realizes that it's open territory. And what about Vaughn? The first growers we actually met were the Munieret family in Vaughn Romanet, and that, thanks to the student that we'd housed who eventually got us to come live in Burgundy, and they were so incredibly welcoming. René Munieret, the grandfather, was a very fine teacher. And one of the earliest vintages I was able to sell was 76. 
That was a drought year. That was a true drought year. It wasn't just sort of a minor two months of it. I mean, the, the fields of grass were brown. And he called me and, and he said, I want you to touch the grapes. I want you to take a grape and touch it and squeeze it. And the skins were so thick, the little bit of juice, he said, you will find that you will not be able to wash away the stain. And this was true. It stayed in my hands for, you know, two or three days. Also, he was quite an advocate of not using clones if one had to replant, but doing what we call selection massale, which is grafting from your proper vines and not choosing uh, your vines for beauty. Uh, an ugly vine can give you fantastic grapes. You know, it, it isn't uh, necessarily the best-looking one. The vineyard manager for Trefethen came over, and he went to see uh, René Munieret, and by the time he left, he had sketched, it was an incredible number, 80 slight different leaf variations. So the idea of multiplicity, people would say, oh, the Romani Conti clone. No, uh, there isn't one clone. This idea of having many seems to produce fantastic ones. Vaughn. Uh, of course, we met Aubert de Vilaine very early when you could go to taste, you know, rather frequently at uh, DRC in those years or have picnics right close to Latache. And uh, I, I don't see how one cannot love phone. So poised. I keep talking about balance as being a very important element for Burgundy. I should mention, of course, the who died much too young, Philippe Angel in Von Romanet, who had characterized his different appellations in very funny ways. There was one which was the Franchouillard, which is a caricature of a Frenchman in a beret with a loaf of bread under his arm. And this other one is this, and this one is Ava Gardner, and so on and so forth. But incredible generosity with his friends. And also someone who had this mastery, absolute mastery over the vineyards he had. You know, back again in 1968, to me it seems like yesterday, and I know it isn't, it's a lifetime ago, there were people in villages who had never gone north to Paris or gone further south in Chalons, Sursonne. And people who... I, I think if some of them were alive today, for instance, there was a, an old fellow in, in Allos Corton when I was visiting, you know, Domaine's, and he described how when he was a little boy, uh, he was taken out of school permanently when he was 12, and they tilled with a horse. Now, today, a horse is a luxury. But he made me, and he spoke to me, and he said that when he was a little boy, they had several parcels of Corton. And he could tell when the horse moved from one parcel to another because if it was rocky, the horse would strain. And if it was sandy, the horse would relax and he would, he would wake up when it was rocky. So he said, in order to explain to you really, because I don't have a horse to show you, here is a soup spoon. And you are going to follow me and we're going to go to different parcels and you are going to taste the soil. Which I did, I didn't swallow. But he insisted that I feel sand, I feel rock, I feel clay. And it's hard to till with a horse. 
If you have a shortish sort of row and you've got to, you know, turn your... It's not an Arabian you're dealing with. It's a handsome, stocky working horse. All these, all these things, you know, when you're my age, you try and sort them out and see what was important and what was definitely not important, which you thought was important, you know, back then and is not important today. I mean, I suppose one of the problems today is will people have the time or the inclination to sell her wines, to keep them for a bit. So there might be more of a tendency to try and vinify in a softer fashion, in a softer fashion, not keep in cask for such a long time. And just thinking about casks, uh, when I started to work with a small shipper in Bone, Camille Giroux, the, they had, the father certainly had a number of stories. And he would say that if a vintage was too watery, what you would do is you would roll your barrels into the courtyard when it was very cold, the water content would freeze, and you would rack into another barrel. Now, I hadn't even thought of that before he told me. What would you do if you had a naturally sort of overwatery vintage? Well, that's what they did. So then suddenly you come upon something that is more concentrated, a vintage that's known to be... Mm. I met Dominique's father, René Lafont, at a tasting I was required to give of California wines when I was selling barrels. And this was down in Chalon-sur-Saône. And there were really incredible people present, including André Noble, who was then the winemaker at DRC. And I was not used to speaking in public. And so I had the microphone and it kept clacking against my teeth. And André, who took no prisoners, came up and said, hold it in both hands. Don't make an idiot of yourself. So I said, okay. But then this gentleman raised his hand and said, why have you never been to visit me? My name is René Lafont. I have a domain in Merceau. So I went to visit René Lafont. And... He was a remarkable man. He's still alive, 90th birthday, just a short time ago, uh, a heating engineer. And he had quite extraordinary ideas, like leaving certain wines. If you didn't have a good year, you left it in barrel. You left your wines in barrel for quite what seemingly is a long time. And he said, the lees nourish and the lees cleanse. Leave the wines on the lees. You know, and part of this certainly was from his heating training, if you will. But then all of these things are a jumble for a while, and you're attributing them to a single, you know, source, really. And then you begin to sort out, and you see, certainly from reading texts that were written in the 19th century and what have you, you begin to see this very long thread. And the bad patches, of course, you know, when vineyards were overtreated. But there one must remember that many of the vineyards had really not yet been to the Lycée Viticole or school, and the people selling the treatments had diplomas. So you believed them. This is human. I mean, I believe, you know, when I go to a doctor, I believe that the doctor is not going to try and poison me by the medication he's giving me. Or when I remember the, the early clonal experiments, and of course, you're not going to know if a clone works or not for 20 years. But they were doing mini vinifications, you know, a clone for color, a clone for precocity, a clone for this and a clone for that. 
And then you had an equal school here who believed that you have to graft from your best vines. All of this. All of this, it's, you know, they say the devil is in the details. And this, I think, is true of every, of every domain. And you, you have a wide variety of what is done. There, there is no recipe here, though people would like to imagine. What are some of the other things that you've, over time, realized really matter, though? I had a moment with Fred Meunier, who is a philosopher of sorts, or someone at least who thinks three-dimensionally. And we were tasting, and he took a piece of chalk and he drew the shape of wine rather than trying to analyze it any more than that. And you know, wine could be round, it could be oval, it could be just a series of curves. And that seemed to me to be a good language. And so I began to taste like that for quite a while afterwards. I tried to feel the shape of a wine. That was very useful. I feel like textural tasting is really helpful when you want to understand where a wine might go, the evolution of a wine. I mean, if you want to focus on what the wine is at this very moment in the glass, then yes, you can talk about descriptors and blueberries and things. But if you want to know what's going to happen with the wine, paying attention to the texture can really help, I think. I agree with you. And a way to do texture instead of just verbally is to get four, five, six pieces of cloth. Just a little square will do. And you take velvet, you take linen, you take a fine cotton, you take wool and one or two others, and you finger them, and that sounds a bit <laughs> bad, but you, you, you play with them as you're tasting. And it's very interesting how your mind will go through this feeling and then put it back into the wine. We have too many words today to describe something that's fairly simple. And Texture certainly is on the tongue, but texture is certainly when you swallow a wine. Either it sort of burns you as it goes down, or it's not soft, or it is. There are a lot of talk about tannins, green tannins, unripe tannins, too much tannin, and so on and so forth. Um, tannin exists in two places, in the vine, the grape, even, or if you're using a cask. Now, people a long time ago, when they purchased a cask, it had to go for many years. The price was such that if they felt that a vintage uh, was already tannic in its very nature, they would put boiling water into their cask before they used it in order to wash out the tannins. Now, it's much more sophisticated today, and I'm talking about people, you know, who were, when I met them, already in their 60s and 70s. But this was done. This was done. They tried to eliminate as much. But tannins are fascinating because if you take a vintage like 2003, which was, you know, very hot, and the grapes came in in sort of different guises. If you took something from Gevray Chambertin, like the Lavo Saint-Jacques, which is shady, your grape was fine. If you had something in a flatter part of the world with less forest around it or above it, then the whole tannin thing was different because you'd bite your grape and you'd have skin tannins, which are very much like the skin of any fruit. You know, I w I'm not peaches and apricots, but, uh, you know, sometimes you have an apple and you feel the skin on it. You can put it between your teeth. The pips 
Also, in that year, with certain grapes, the pips were almost powdery, where, where a pip usually is a little bit resistant and you can bite down on it. And then the stems, you know, with certain grapes, they were hard. There was nothing green in them, but they almost turned into powder. So tannins are quite fascinating. Now, you could say that the punishment fits the crimes, and in certain vintages that were meant to age, that your tannins were going to be tough tannins. And those were, those were wines that were put down, never, never to be drunk in the following year, the year following bottles. But there is a great deal of discussion about tannins, and I think that some people find the taste of tannins very agreeable, and others hate, hate, hate anything that is rough. Perhaps their definition of wine is different from the tannin lover who likes the bite of a tannin, likes the bite. And tannic wines, is, I know I'm burbling on, but some one thought leads to another. Uh, tannic wines and tannic appellations often lend themselves to cooking with wonderful sauces, where a wine which doesn't have that much of a tannic profile, you need to cook very simply. Best product you can buy and no fuss over it. And then you really get the, but you know, you have as pomar is for game. Well, that's true in a funny way with many pomars because there is a good tannic component. And you do something with a, a really sexy sauce, you know, and your pomar, and they're going to go together. So tannic vintages need different foods. It's very important. And what about Russell's influence on the portfolio and the company? You met oh. over a common admiration of a shirt, is that correct? That's how we met, yes. He's very tall and I'm very small. And so my eyes stopped at his shirt. And then I did have, when he sat down, a brief glimpse of his face. And I was smitten. I mean, really, smitten, bow and arrow and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, I, all I could think of to say to him was, I like your shirt. And we met the next day, I didn't know he was going to be there, at a tasting of wines at under five pounds a bottle. And he had a bright scarlet shopping bag. And apparently I turned as scarlet as the shopping bag because I'm very uncomfortable with receiving gifts. And in it was a shirt and a tie. That's how it started. <laughs> His influence on the company, first of all, at that point, you know, we weren't what we are today. And Russell, well, first of all, he was a certain age, and he knew about things like Bordeaux, the other side of, you know, the world, and very objective palate. Well, Lafarge used to call on Russell to see what he thought. Things very objective, very good. So, yes, definitely an influence. Very. And he's the company cook. It was always company policy, even when my offices were where you're sitting now, and I had, you know, that uh, a little kitchen with, was if you could have people in, and then you could serve the wines you wanted to with food. And that was always, even when I had no room, no space, that was always a, it seemed to me a good idea. So we, we, we followed that, because when you're in a restaurant, I mean, wonderful choice, but also restaurants are not intimate. So that was just... A, a lot of what we've done has been out of necessity, organic, and has not 
had all been plotted, if you will, and then it worked. You know, it's like throwing the spaghetti against the wall to see if it's cooked. We evolve. We do our best to evolve. When you're older, you have an odd sense of strategy. You may fight against radical change, but you, you have an odd sense. I can't quite explain it. You, you sort of are looking at everything that's happening. You know, in, in, when I can't sleep, what if there is a trade war? What if Trump slaps a 20% surtax on everything that comes from Europe? He's not happy with Europe. And I remember when we couldn't ship, there was a moment where a product called Sumislex was used for treating vineyards, and yet it was a Japanese company who had purchased it, and it wasn't approved by the FDA. All, <laughs> all shipments of French wine were stopped for six months. Now, it's very hard to survive. You can't go to your banker and say, um, hey, <laughs> there was a mistake that's been made, and I won't be able to ship for six months. So we've seen this sort of thing. And so one tends to look at the world. Maybe we should be paying attention to a few other countries a bit more, not highly competitive countries, but people who are interested in us because of our younger generation. So what about Vujo? What would you tell me about Vujo, the people in the place? Once somebody, um, I worked with Lalu for a couple of years, and, and she had some memorable statements and was asked what Vujo is, and her reply was, I can tell you what it is not. <laughs> uh, there are some wonderful ones. I think that certainly Grivo makes a very good Clos Vujo. Philippe Angel made a splendid Clos Vujo. It's a... How can I put it? Uh, my own categorization is often a bit personal, but I very often call it the favorite uncle wine, the favorite uncle appellation. A good, solid one does not let you down. It has presence. Um, it's not going to take you out dancing or anything, but it's there, and it's very good as a Thanksgiving wine, Christmas wine. Is it? Something that is easily definable, no. I think I agree that if you have a bit of land in the top, middle, and bottom, that it essentially makes a better one. Although I've had very good ones from all middle or, you know. What was it like working with Lalu? Wonderful. <laughs> it was wonderful. Uh, she was very generous at those times. I remember taking someone there, and we had a 20-year vertical of Casache. Her definitions of terroirs were fascinating and very individualistic. You know, she would say, this is what a chambre bord should be like. And you believed her. She was exceedingly believable. And the wines certainly lived up to it. But she was one of the first people, I think, to give such strong personalities to the various appellations. And not just with the top stuff. I mean, you know, a village would... She was very fond, also, of the odder ones. She, she really liked her aussi de Rest, a wonderful Savigny Narbonton. And when she became very famous, of course, the context changes. But no, those were, those were very good years. and Very good years. What about Flahy Eshazo? I find it not to be a dramatic... One, Grand Echazo is more dramatic than Echazo. 
I mean, Grande Chazos are, whew, you know, they're emotional wines. The Achazos, once again, rather like Clovougeau, are, are stable and solid and handsome, and, uh, but they don't need any makeup either. Don't need any makeup. You don't need to twiddle with them. And very often it's underappreciated, even at the domain. What about Chambol appellations? Ah. Love story, anyone will tell you. Uh, yes, you've got your Grand Cru, you've got Amaris, which should be a Grand Cru, but you've got, you know, you've got Chouet, you've got Baud, you've got, oh, you've got Charm, you've got just a panoply of lovely stuff there. And uh, a good proportion of older vines, a very interesting group of winemakers, if you contrast Vogue and Fred, for instance, Fred Meunier. There you've got two different approaches. The Vogue group very often come to our symposia, and I will do a little vertical of them. And very often one is surprised by the youthfulness. Opened a 2001 the other day, still young, still young. Francois Millet is a brilliant winemaker, very interesting in his language used to describe his wines. He once confounded somebody by saying it is vaguely candied, but it is also candid, and then referring to Voltaire, and it's candied. And, you know, uh, translating that was <laughs> rather fun. If I wanted to understand the difference between some of the crews and the Chambol Mousseni, what would I be thinking about? Because, you know, people talk about the red soil, the white soil. You've got a, a considerable portion in red soil, which means that the wines are basically... Um, Thicker isn't the right word. Uh, they're denser than the white soil ones. And, you know, very easy. One looks on a map and goes, boom, 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 and Fouet is closer to the denser ones and so on and so forth. Maps are very useful for understanding. And yet a lot of people avoid looking at them. I know you have a couple of producers in Marcinet. I feel like that's an area that's been a strong point for you. Sylvain Patai, who is both an enologist and a... Now, I can't say winemaker, because Fred Meunier brought up the thing. He said there is no uh, French word for winemaker, because do you call a gardener a flower maker? I think this is. <laughs> but he makes, I mean, what springs to mind is the word profound, but that doesn't tell you much about them. They are deep in color. They are texturally wonderful. Wonderful, the, the best of cloth. I would say that they would be perhaps one of the finest woolens ever made, or velvet. That's how they are texturally. Do you see differences in geography in the Cote de in terms of where combs are, or the way a range moves in terms of north-south? Or What's very interesting is that you can fake people out with certain appellations in the Côte de Bonne and certain appellations in the Côte de Nuit put side by side. I think Françoise Vanier once said that, for instance, the stone of Gevray goes underneath and comes up in the Volnay Sentinelle. And people hadn't realized that rocks did this or, or that you know, this was part of geology. I mean, the only thing I would say, I wish Chassagne would produce more red. It's a very interesting appellation. They're, they're strong and they last for quite some time. 
heavily planted in red for a long time. And then as the reds lost ground commercially, a lot of planting in white. So you've got a lot of white and red soil. What do you think about granite soil? Ah, quite exciting with Gamay. Very exciting with Gamay. Somehow, I think the Gamay could be a bit uh, uninteresting on limestone. Now, I don't know why I think this. I can't give you any geological reason for it. But granite Gamays have personality. And I've tasted, you know, Gamays in the past two range here in Burgundy. And unless you have something really old like Lafarge, they're kind of, it's a vague bit bloated. I mean, is it because of the water content of the limestone and the granite there's less? I, I don't know, but uh, granite and Gamay seem to be a good pair. And the Beaujolais crews with their intense personalities, you know, it was said that the, uh, when I started to work, the Trogos really gave me a, a decent chance to do their selection. It was an era where chef selections were just, you know, becoming important. But it was always said that their father, Pierre and Jean's father, uh, serviced the widows of Fleury, that he was always up there. And he would always tell me, ah, my little olives. And I thought he was talking about the women. But when we went to see the Lafarge Fleury's, Frederick very seriously said to me, and the gamets here are olive-shaped. You know, I'm going, ding. <laughs> they weren't his widows, but they were the, his grapes. And he loved Fleury and apparently died with a glass of Fleury in his hand. But then you take the Moulin Vence, which can go on forever. And I remember that Lalo used to do an annual tasting for chefs, really. And uh, I remember I was invited, you know, when I was working with her for that brief period. And she would always serve an unmarked bottle wrapped in a... And no one could get it, and no one could get it. And Jean Troigler goes, that is a very old Moulin Avant, and he was spot on. It was a Moulin Avant in Magnum, because they last forever. And you know Morgans, which it was always said they pee not when they get older. And it's, it's very true that when you get a Beaujolais crew of a certain age, they become more like Pinot. They really do. So I, I, I love them. I absolutely love them. I want to get more in the Beaujolais. For years, it was an effort. I still have a little catalog I did in eight, you know, of all the crews with their personalities and what have you. Very, very hard to sell. You, you couldn't sell a producer Beaujolais. I mean, people, Dubuff was cheaper, you know, and the idea that uh, was very hard. So I feel like Michel Lafarge was a key relationship in your life in terms of Burgundy. He was. He was indeed for many reasons. Uh, one of the most important, I felt I could ask him questions about viticulture and vinification, and he would give me a very thoughtful answer. And I said, what to you is the most important step in vinification? And he said, pressing. And a lot of people forget that if you have a vintage where you know it's going to be quite tannic, you know that, you don't press as hard as you can with other vintages. And I know that sounds like a very simple and sensible thing, but to me it encapsulated a lot of what I was beginning to see. That was an important 
part of it, and he was very kind. He received a lot of the California winemakers and spoke to them uh, in very uh, quiet but, you know, authoritative terms. Also, I think he brought into their lives a notion of when he began, which was in the mid-50s, there was a terrible frost killing off a great number of vines. So he gave them a sense of it is not always going to be good and optimum. You know, when we've had recently some very hot vintages and people didn't know what to do, and Michel would explain that in 1947, his father would try and pick, you know, by the end of the day or in the morning before it got really hot and water down with a hose, not a hose that was lying in the sun, but a hose that had been kept purposefully in the shade so that the grapes would remain cool. Because in 1947, you didn't have much. <laughs> there, there was very little equipment. It was, what, two and a half years after the war had ended, and Burgundy was occupied. You really didn't have much to work with, but that, you know. Did you see ramifications of that occupation in the um, way that people engaged culturally in the 60s, 70s, 80s? Yes. Well, we moved here in 68, and we lived in Saint-Romain. And there was a scene that probably, I would say, symbolizes the occupation uh, of Burgundy. Uh, a German fellow, probably in his 60s or 70s, came through with what would have been a grandson. And the old women in the village, it was incredible to see, came out of their houses. And the old fellow was bragging, possibly, to his grandson and saying, this is where I was. And they all spat at him. But in 1968, it wasn't so far away. This village, where we live now, was occupied. And the woman who sold us the farm said that she was very lucky because she had an officer who was quartered here. There were a lot of Jerusalem artichokes when we were digging for our vegetable garden, and that was because it was hidden. People couldn't come and take the food. Soldiers couldn't come and take the food. These memories are vivid. Nowadays, of course, it's finished. You don't have the young generation. They go happily to Germany. Germany, Germany comes to France. But it, the memories were quite vivid when we arrived. Sort of lends new perspective to the idea that Crow Parenti was planted to Jerusalem artichokes at one time. Oh. So I feel like you admire your mom a great deal for having the chutzpah, as we say in New York, to start over when her career stalled. She was in one direction and she totally shifted gears and made a, a different career and a different life for herself. I definitely admired her not willing to be defeated. And that seems like a key characteristic for you as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, we've had very bad moments, you know, where I've needed recapitalization a couple of times. There was a huge bankruptcy in, in New York. It looked really bad. And then someone said, oh, you know, that's not that much money to an American. I'm going to come in. And the night before, the week before the dollar started getting shaky, and the night before he called and said, I can't do it. My gang won't do it. Dollar's gone down. And I had to convince the bank and so on and so forth and all of that. So, um, yeah, there have been moments of <laughs> complete, ooh, what am I going to do? But, and then I always did probably think of the example of my mother, who just got up and did it. And this you hear a lot from, you know, winemakers. 
all right, there's nothing we can do about the weather, we're just going to have to see it through. For me, it's a very healthy community to be in. It's just get up and do it. I think being strong for other people is a big part of your marketing model. I think you've developed some empathy from setbacks in your own life. Oh, of course you do. If you, if you don't have any, how are you going to learn? And then when the, the, the bad times come, which they inevitably do, mm, not good, because you don't know how to cope with adversity. And I think that certainly I took my responsibility very seriously. And uh, it was a learning process because, I didn't, you know, I was a copywriter. I didn't go selling things. I wrote about things, but I didn't uh, have to get into the hard business of convincing people. And lots of doors were slammed. You had to knock on doors, but you had to... It was funny. I was <laughs> in San Diego, and I was really knocking on doors with my little list. And, you know, you, you knocked on doors. You tried to get a restaurant or a retailer interested, and then you could use that as leverage to find an importer. And I was in San Diego, staying in my usual cheap hotel. And so I go around, I go around, and then I'm back in my room, tired, longing for room service. And there's a knock on the door. And there are two impressive and rather dangerous-looking men standing there. And I go, can I help you? And they say, the boss wants to see you. The boss. And so I trot off with them. And the boss was straight out of central casting, and uh, he said to me, what are you doing in my territory? Uh, I didn't realize that certain cities were controlled. I, I had no idea that this was a part of the wine trade. And uh, he said, what are you doing? And I said, sir, I'm a woman trying to become financially independent. And I have this little list of French wines that I was just trying to find some people for. And he turned to the two fellows and said, what did you bring me this thing for? She's no danger. And he offered me a glass of champagne, and shakingly I went back to <laughs> my hotel room. But there was, if you will, I see them now as adventures. There were, there were time and time again, unexpected things would happen. There was no, there was no glory in what I was doing. You know, it was, you, you had to win over an audience, or you had to get somebody interested, and you know. There's a large degree of self-reliance in there, I think. Oh, I was motivated, yes. Oh, of course. I was motivated, and, and uh, definitely I, I felt very akin to the small demands. I, I just felt that that was something that I really could relate to, you know? But the Barrels paid, if you will, my living wage. I mean, I could afford to do wines with my barrels because that was... And then bit by bit, uh, the setbacks are very instructive. I mean, if everyone is patting your back and saying you're wonderful, uh, doesn't do it. It hasn't helped me, you know, <laughs> when they all pat my back. No. <laughs> if you could say something to your younger you, what do you think you would say? <laughs> I would say you probably should have consulted with more people before you launched on your wine adventure. <laughs> what do you tell your kids? <laughs> I tell them you're working with an all-woman company. Be careful. <laughs> no, I'm very proud of them both, both Peter and Paul, because when they left uh, France, it was not as anybody in the wine trade. You know, I, we had a musician, composer, and a filmmaker. 
and they started both in very menial jobs and then found that there was just the richness of the wine trade or, you know, whatever, and each of them fascinated by other aspects of it. You know, they're not twins, Peter and Paul. Now that you've met Paul, you can see that he's not like Peter at all. Um, and uh, I, I just tell them that one, one mustn't try and change too rapidly. I, I, I try and tell them to be prudent, really. No dramatic changes, just pursue what we know how to do best. Becky Wasserman Hone had a mother that sewed her own costumes for a performance, and Becky speaks about the texture of wines in terms of fabrics. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. It was a delight. Becky Wasserman Hone of Becky Wasserman Company. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose, and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.